0: Dr. R. J. Rushduni, RR 161 DH 204, World War I, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects.
1: This is R. J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 316, June 1, 1994. In this session, John Upton, Otto Scott, and I will discuss World War II and how it changed the world. I've often commented on the fact that most of the people now living have been born since World War II. And if you go back to 1940 you find that uh, the overwhelming majority of people have been born since then. So there are only a few of us, comparatively speaking, who know the world before the war. It was a very different world. Technologically, the world has advanced dramatically since World War II. On the other hand... There have been major losses in the area of freedom. In the pre-war world, only a very limited number of wealthy people paid income taxes. Taxes as a whole were so limited that very few people were greatly excited by them. Our contact with the county, state, and federal governments was very slight. It was an era of freedom. This does not mean there were not problems. We were a rougher, tougher, more pugnacious, more independent people in those days. And we were also a more Christian people. The... (coughs) Interesting thing is that the depression drove a great many people back to church and the crime rate dropped. We have a completely different era then. And even more so if you go back before World War 1. It was a country with a very great amount of freedom. So the world has changed dramatically, not for the better in uh, the area of uh, personal freedom and as far as the nature of the state is concerned. The areas that are better have been made better by capitalism, by the inventiveness of men and American ability has contributed greatly to that, although it's beginning to fade a bit. Well, with that general introduction, Otto, would you like to go on with how the war changed the world?
0: Yes. I left home in March 1934. So what is that? This is 94, so that was 60 years ago. And I roamed across the country in the 30s, 34, for 34 and 35. And I didn't really begin to situate myself until 36, 37. In 39, of course, the war started in Europe. Now, when I left in 34, Most of the houses in the United States had outdoor toilets. And for most of the families uh, were poor. Hamburger once a week was considered pretty good. And uh, chicken on high occasions was a big treat. The uh, Working class was discernible at a distance. You could tell a working man from a middle class fellow because he had different clothes, he carried himself differently, he walked uh, differently, and they spoke differently. The classes were much more obvious. $1,200 a year was a, a pretty good wage. $25 twenty five dollars a week was a good wage. Beyond that thirty five was thirty five to fifty was was better, of course, but <clears throat> ten thousand was success. Twenty thousand was very substantial. And as Rush says there was no income tax for the average person. I remember it wasn't until the late 30s I <coughs> paid an income tax, and then it was an ver- inconsiderable amount, I've forgotten how much, and everybody said you must be making a lot of money. It was a rougher country, uh, fist fights were common. If a fellow insulted you, you hit him. Uh, it was free in the sense of, of speech. <coughs> you could say what you liked within ordinary limits, or, let's say, within reasonable limits. Every, every crowd, every every group had a, a, a nickname. The Irish in New York were donkeys, and we had Pollocks. We had all kinds of names for all kinds of minorities. But there was not the hatred that there is today. It was done with humor. It wasn't done to hurt. There was a feeling that we were all Americans. It was taken for granted that we were all Americans. And to be an American is something I haven't heard anyone describe himself as an American on television or in the movies for years. Mm -hmm. It's practically a vanished self-identification. And the, but there were several dark sides to the period that I matured in, and that was the division which grew up between the generations in terms of apprenticeship and companion. Uh, the the depression wiped out an awful lot of jobs, and where a young fellow before that could learn from older men in the job there was just no job so therefore there wasn't the same contact with older men I went into newspapers so therefore I still had that but the factories were, sh- were shut and there was it's almost like today where if there's a job opening advertised 5,000 people show up and they're doing that again mm. and they were homeless then which they, we now have again so when the paper tells me that things are doing so well, that our economy is improving and so forth, I look out the window, and it doesn't look that way to me. This looks more familiar to me. This looks like the Depression. There were knots of men on the boxcars and uh, hitchhiking and this and that. And it was, as Russ says, it was rougher. I was knocked off a train in Arizona. There were several of us seven or eight of us, the brakeman came along with an iron bar and made us jump, so we jumped. And we had to walk something like 20 miles through the sand to get back to town in the middle of summer. My face was so swollen from sunburn that I couldn't see. And I I spent several days in the railroad yards looking for the brakie. I'm glad I didn't find him. I didn't have good intentions, but the mood passed, and I, I missed him. There were a lot of that sort, There was a lot of that sort of thing. The police were rough. There were beatings attendant upon arrest, and they persuaded confessions in that fashion. And yet, I found that the average person was kind, there was a lot of uh, help of one another, the movies cleaned up, they'd gotten very racy in the 20s and the late 20s, but they, they got almost religious in the 30s, and so did everyday literature. But fundamentally, it was a country in which most of the people were what you might call decent and poor. And poverty was not considered proof of injustice in the system. It was taken for granted.
2: I think the, uh, on the dark side, the biggest impact that I've seen in World War II is in the Balkans where we literally carved, carved things up and parceled it out to different people. And especially in Hungary and Romania, there's a lot of uh, hatred that still exists. And although I still remember something that you said, I, I invited you to go to Romania with me, and, and you once said that you wouldn't go there because of you, that you were ashamed.
0: Well, we watched those people go into captivity without raising our voice. In fact, we connived with Stalin to put them in captivity. And, of course, before that, they were pushed into enclaves with one another by the help of Woodrow Wilson. The Europe has no good reason to thank uh, the United States.
1: One of the things that happened in the 30s that I think was revelatory of what the country was like then, was that uh, a great many people, being jobless, lost their homes. And it was not unusual to know of houses where the old folks still working and two of the children, had moved in, so there would be three families under one roof and, uh, in most cases, doing quite well together and quite happily. I know of one instance of that having started up again It'll be interesting to see whether the family revives as it did then to take care of its own because the biggest welfare agency in the United States in the 30s was the family. It took in its members. They worked together. In some instances, it would be uh, part-time jobs for two or three under the roof and pulling it together in order to get by. The families did a remarkable job then and yet no one has ever written about that aspect of the 30s.
0: No, they haven't. But there are other aspects too in a similar vein. What the war did... Now, before the war, before we got into the war, of course, the Americans didn't believe that we would they didn't think that we would be stupid enough to get into a European war twice because we didn't get uh, much out of the first one and I remember that some of the boys in New Windsor all Irish American that I knew (coughs) from childhood onward called me and said they were coming down to New York and they wanted me to show them uh, show them around And they came down, and I took them to the men's bar at the Waldorf, which isn't what it sounds like. The men's bar at the Waldorf used to... It was a a fairly large room with tables, like this small table for four, so forth. Uh, They served the whiskey with a tape alongside the side of the bottle, which was scored. If you ordered whiskey and they'd give you set-ups... Uh, ice and uh, mix and so forth and they would charge you by how much you had taken out of the bottle at the end of the session and uh, nothing fancy very much down to earth regular old New England style well they didn't feel comfortable they didn't like the idea of being in the men's bar at the Waldorf So I took them over to Third Avenue, which had the Elevated in those days, and had sawdust pits, and that was more like it. That was it. Hmm. And uh, so we began to enjoy ourselves, and I was interested because I was with the United Press, and the teletypes were cranking out information from Europe, and I could see the war forces gathering. And I said, what do you think about Europe? What do you think will happen in Europe? And they all looked at Eddie Leahy, who was the leader. He was an athlete and so forth. And Eddie looked at me and said, who do you think will win the World Series, Otto? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well,
0: he died over there. Mm -hmm. So he found out later that it wasn't such a ridiculous thing. Mm -hmm. But he will always epitomize the American attitude toward the rest of the world in my eyes. Because this is a country which doesn't believe that the rest of the world is real. Maybe it's because we're so large. And then, of course, the war did hit us. So all these young guys who really had no great skill... They had not much experience with older men outside their family or any experience at all outside their family because in the 30s, people, if they had a home, they stuck, stayed there. They didn't travel much. Very few ever got out of the country. So they got into the armed services. What did we have? We had 16 million in uniform. And that's when their schooling began. They, it was a collective education. They were collectivized in the army, and most of them didn't get overseas, and most of them didn't see combat. But they were in the army, and they were disciplined, and they were taught various skills. A lot of them were sent to school. And after the war, business schools Arose on every side because there was the 5220. They were, the uh, government gave them, what was it, $20 a week for 52 weeks or something like that so that they could go to school and the government paid for their tuition in these schools. So business schools appeared everywhere. And then of course there was a great rush of hiring. So they moved into the corporate life. First the corporate army, then the corporate school, and then the corporate life itself. And that's the period in which the Americans were organized and trained and disciplined and pushed into the mold in which they're in now.
1: Otto, you're right that in those days most Americans never gave the rest of the world much thought. But it was because, first, most of them came from a foreign background, and they were glad to be away from Europe.
0: That was their older, I'm talking now, you're talking about the older generation. Yes. I'm talking about my generation, and really your generation. We were, you were practically born here. Yes. And I was born here.
1: But I was surrounded, as was everyone in my community, by the generation that had migrated They were glad to be away from that world. Then there was the feeling of how blessed it was, and I heard this more than once from older folks, that it wasn't like Europe where another country could storm across the border. We had oceans on either side. And it was only in 26 when Lindbergh made that Light, which created a sensation from coast to coast. So there was a sense of uh, remoteness as far as the rest of the oh, world we were was on concerned. the other side of the moon, yes. And I can recall to this day very, very vividly when I graduated in June of 1938, got my bachelor's at Berkeley and stayed on, Uh, one older man whom I had met and who was there at Berkeley and Robert Gordon Sproul, the president of the university, gave an address which was really an interventionist speech calling upon us to get involved in Europe, to move against Hitler and against uh, Mussolini and so on. And this man, who hadn't been here more than a few months from France, broke down and wept. He wept for this country. He said they don't know what they're getting into when they get into Europe's quarrels. It has destroyed generations of peoples there. And if the United States gets involved in Europe, they're going to reap generations of sorrow. So, no one understood him except myself because he had talked to me by the hour. But... He thought the remoteness was a blessing that we did not fully appreciate. And we've changed that because we no longer have that uh, feeling that our world is the United States and we've got to uh, make sure that we keep our noses clean and make sure that our children get a good start in life.
0: Well, of course, Europe was a lot closer in New York than in Berkeley. But even and then... There was an awful lot of foreigners in New York. Oh, yes. And we had the refugees that came pouring in. I remember in the east side New York, around Southern Place, you heard nothing but German, the German Jews.
1: Well, you see... California at that time was largely made up of newcomers and immigrants in my hometown. As far as I knew, when I went to high school, there was one girl who came from an old American family. Pocahontas Ball was her name.
0: Well, that was a very special town. Well, the town mo- that I came from, there was a lot of old families. Yes. And most well, of the United States had old families. I mean, this wasn't an half, empty country, you know. That
1: half did, but the newcomers kept moving west. And here in the west, Well, it was, this were,
0: was your unique experience to be in a town that was mostly immigrants.
1: The... Uh, but the United States was not mostly immigrants. The valley towns, the San Joaquin Valley, were made up of immigrants.
0: Yeah. I came from an older town. Yes. We had a Revolutionary War cemetery.
1: Yes. But it wasn't New York that was close to Europe because of immigrants, because the immigrants were all over California.
0: Well, now, you're translating your personal experience to the whole country, but it wasn't the whole country. Most of the country, I've been here quite a while.
2: Yeah, but what what was wrong with your friend Eddie's point? Uh, In other words, you know, if I hear this word, we live in a global, what's it called, a global community, again, I'm going to puke, why should we care? Besides Christianizing outside the United States and trading, uh, what should we care about the world? At the time I asked Eddie that,
0: Mr. Roosevelt was maneuvering us into war, and Eddie thought it was a stupid thing to even notice. That's what's wrong and with And was Eddie. he wrong? Yes, he was wrong, because if he had been alert to what was going on, we wouldn't
1: have been maneuvered so easily. Even then, it was only by virtually a secret declaration of war that we finally got Japan to attack us. without. An attack we never would have gone to That's war. That's
0: true. The people didn't want to go to war. Mm-hmm.
1: They didn't believe that Roosevelt would dare put us into war. It never occurred to them that it would come the no, way we it ne- did. No, they
2: never dreamed the Japanese would attack. So how how should we how should we look at it today? What what should what should we tell our children well, coming should, up
0: about the rest of it? We world. should tell our children to pay attention to the world because we're part of the world. And a global society is not a phrase that I like. But this same ocean that laps up on the shores here laps up on the shores of Asia and on the shores of Europe, and we should never forget it. I mean, we're simply not on our own planet. We don't own this planet. I think the Russians and the Americans are alike in this. We've got a great big continent. And we think that's all there is to the world.
1: Well, the problem today is we're dealing with such dishonesty. I was reading a rather long article about China and how China is qualifying at one point after another to receive aid because its industries are now open and are increasingly owned by foreigners. But this is a myth. We know it's a myth. What they do to meet our qualifications is to uh, send some men to Macau, give them enough to meet the American qualification of foreign ownership, 25%, So the Chinese government will have this dummy office in Macau and it will qualify that Chinese, totally Chinese-owned corporation as partly foreign-owned. And in fact, the White House is playing games knowing what it's doing and is deceiving the people. Vice President Gore and two or three others highly placed in Washington were drinking beer the other day and were shown uh, on a news Chinese beer that's coming over because it meets our qualifications of foreign-owned uh, production. And what can you do in a world with that kind of dishonesty going on wholesale in Washington.
0: Well, okay. Let's go back to
1: the 30s. We still had
0: tariffs. We had high tariffs. We didn't have the income tax. It didn't pay for our government. We still owned our homes. Yes. There was no land tax
1: And you could get a good home in California for $2,500. Very nice. That
2: that would be a very good home. Yes. Very good home. So what's wrong with going back to that? What do we need the rest of the world for?
0: We don't. We don't particularly need it. But we should keep our eye on Mm -hmm. it. We should know what it's all about.
1: It would be nice for a change to have a president who's more concerned with us than China and Somalia.
0: Have you ever heard an American president praise this country in recent decades? No. I'm saying decades.
1: No, we have not.
0: Have you ever heard of any leader of any other country in the world praising the United States for the help it's given?
1: No. Mm. We haven't had a president who's respected us since Calvin Coolidge, and he's abused for what? He was
0: Well, they made fun of Calvin Coolidge. They made, first of all, they desecrated the grave and the memory of Harding, who was a good president in his day. Then they made fun of Calvin Coolidge, mm-hmm. who was a genuine scholar who translated books from the Latin into English
1: <coughs> and who wrote his own speeches. Mm-hmm. The last president to do so.
0: Now, Mr. Roosevelt made a great many errors and in many ways was a shallow man. But there was one thing for which I'll always give him credit, and that is that he provided you with a feeling that there was a captain on the bridge of the ship. Yes. We haven't had that feeling in a president since.
1: Paul Johnson, in his history of modern times... I thought uh, gave Calvin Coolidge his due appreciation.
0: He's the only one. Yes. harding also.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, they
0: gave us a balanced budget. They got rid of the national debt. Mr. Hoover inherited a very good situation when he came in. The Democrats blamed him for a worldwide depression. And... It's the first time that a president of the United States was really mocked and traduced and charged and propagandized into impotence while he was in office. They specialize in this.
1: Otto, in those days, of course, I was in California, which had a very low population and... uh, when I went back east at one point, all the boys I met wanted to know if we still had Indian raids here in California. <laughs> but uh, your experiences in New York, in New York City, and in Newburgh, what was it like there? Was it like California where nobody locked their doors?
0: Absolutely. My grandparents would put a note on the door when they went out saying, Key under mat. (laughs) (laughs) And in New York City itself, the poor people slept on the fire escape in the summer. They put a mattress on the escape. And they slept in Central Park Mm -hmm. because it was cooler there. There was a lot of nightlife. I remember going to Billy Rose's Copacabana and to all the nightclubs of the district uh, of the period later on, the Cotton Club, and listened to Bojangles. That's Bill Robinson. And I remember that was in the later 30s. He told a joke. He, he was a great tap dancer, you know. He, he tap danced up his little stepladder and tap danced down the other side while he was telling the joke. And he said that this fellow from Harlem... Was driving to Florida and he went through a red light in a town called Keep On Going, Georgia. <laughs> and a cop stopped him right away and said, Did you see that you went through that red light? And he said, Why, well, yes, I, I did. He said, I, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. He said, What do you mean, going through a red light? He said, Well, I saw a white lady going through the green light and I thought the red light was for us colored folks. <laughs> And I've remembered it all these years. That stupid little story, you know. But there was a great deal of humor. Yes. Now, there was no such thing as a serial murderer or a serial murderer Mm -hmm. that we knew about. And I covered crime in the 30s. And I knew members of the mafia. And... They kept pretty. They kept their business pretty much to transactions amongst themselves. There was nothing of the. uh, It was an unwritten rule not to give the details of a crime when you wrote up the story because it would inspire imitations. The forbidden book section of the New York Public Library. I remember when I was given my press credentials in New York. I said, "What good are they?" And the fellow said, well, you can go into the forbidden book section. So I flew over there right away, (laughs) because pornography was very expensive and very rare, and I expected to find it in that section. But instead, there were the medieval books on torture. That was the forbidden area, because lunatics would go in and tear these things out of the books and go and do it. Mm -hmm. And it was sadism that was the danger, Mm
1: -hmm. not sex. And now we encourage it on television and the films and in literature. It was during the war that uh, I was in New York uh, in connection with my missionary work, and I stayed at uh, a mission house in the heart of the immigrant and poorest area, absolutely safe. Mm-hmm. I wandered around some of the supposedly worst parts of New York until midnight, mm-hmm. visiting after hours the old used bookstores. Mm-hmm. On 14th Street. And you were safe somewhere. anywhere.
0: Yeah. It, 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 it was a city that never slept. Yes. Now, I, I haven't have- seen the like, except in Berlin, when I was there in the 60s. That was awake all night long. London uh, in the 90s is not safe anymore, so you can't go everywhere in London at night uh, because of the strange... Caribbean immigrants that they have. They had muggings and in Muslims. Now, yes, and Muslims. But I remember that I went back to New York at one point. Most of the time I didn't ship out of New York. But I, I did get back into New York during the war at one, one point. And I went out at night and then sometime about one or two in the morning I got a cab and said, take me to Dickie Wells' which used to be an uh, after-hours nightclub in Harlem, which is almost all white clientele. And he turned around and said, how long have you been away? I said, well, a couple of years. He said, well, we don't go there anymore. I said, why not? He said, it's not safe. And I was shocked. The idea that any part of the city was unsafe was totally foreign before the war.
1: I spoke once... Uh it was after the war before things changed at a conference and I had to leave a day early to catch my plane and the uh, driver was told that uh, since he was leaving early I forget for what purpose Leave me at this man's home. And I said, "Well, how will I get in?" He said, "Oh, it, it would, won't be locked." Now here he was, mm-hmm. about a hundred and fifty miles or so away, mm-hmm. and I was going to that city to catch a plane. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called and arranged for somebody to pick me up from the house later, but I just walked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine that happening today? Not in many places.
0: Well, can you imagine that in the 30s nobody had a resume?
1: No. You
0: walked in and applied for the job. And uh, if you didn't work out, you'd be fired. And you'd go somewhere else and get another job. Mm-hmm. Even when jobs were scarce. Yes. I applied for a job at United Press. And the the fellow who interviewed me, the man who interviewed me, said, uh, what school of journalism did you go to? And I said, I didn't go. He said, you didn't go to a school of journalism? I said, no. He said, you see those men sitting out there? I said, yes. He said, everyone went to a school of journalism. What makes you think that you're qualified for this job? I said, well, I can do the work. I've had the experience. Well, he said, we'll try you out on an assignment. And that's still the way, you know, you're hired as a writer on a newspaper. Mm -hmm. They try you on an assignment. So I knew I had it. Yes. No resume. No. We discussed this when I was 21, which was before the war. Three or four of us who had, and we all had some international experience. And we compared our situation with tell us our age in Europe. And we said, those poor bastards. Because in Europe, your record began when you went to kindergarten, and it followed you together with the comments of all your teachers in every grade, in every school, in every job, and you had, this was your dossier. Whereas in the United States, nobody asked you anything. Just, could you do the work? And you were free. You're not free anymore because now we've got a dossier that the cop can pull up on his computer.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I recall something in the mid-Depression. This man who had uh, a fair-sized market, if he went and applied for a job, he'd usually give an order before he talked to you to one of the girls and then he'd say excuse me I have something I have to take care of and he'd take off but he'd keep an eye on the person would you just step in and help the girl because what he'd ask her to do would be a little difficult if you did he'd come out and tell you what your hours were mm-hmm. Now uh, that sort of thing is no longer possible. He
0: well, we could also fire
1: you in five minutes. Oh yeah.
0: yes, yes, being fired, I've forgotten the number of jobs I've had. I really couldn't tell you if you—I was forced to. I couldn't. But I understand that people who apply for a government job today are given lengthy forms in which they have areas where you're supposed to fill out what you did and where you live every month of your life Mm -hmm.
2: there's no way I could have ever done that Mm -hmm. when did um, the concept of a redeemer nation come into play
1: there's a book by that title as you may know the whole idea has been overblown First of all, when the colonists came over, their concept of the country, then the colonies, was that they were to be like a city set on a hill, to give their light to all the world. So they saw themselves as having a Christian mission. They had a post-millennial faith. And they felt that having started free of a lot of the handicaps of Europe, they could function more effectively as a redeemer nation. However, by the 1830s, that vision had given way and the purely personal interpretation of the faith, pietistic, had come into being. And a few writers, to promote the American imperialistic thoughts they had, particularly at the time of the Spanish-American War, did promote the idea of the United States as having a world mission. And some of the media were very uh, partial to it, the Hearst Papers picked it up. But as far as being a popular thing, uh, that, I think, is questionable. Most of the people are glad to be out from the old country, glad to be part of this country, and would prefer that they not get involved in uh, that sort of thing. It first appeared in the Mexican War, and there were those who wanted the. Uh, all of Mexico added uh, to the United States <clears throat> as separate states and they wanted to see it develop in terms of American culture but most were uninterested. They simply wanted to <clears throat> secure American freedom for expansion in that area and to dispute Mexico's claim to the once Spanish departments, which were not a part of Mexico, but independent departments under Spain. Texas was never under Mexico. California, Arizona, New Mexico. The Spanish Empire had different departments. Mexico was one among a number.
0: There was, though, up until World War II, A sense that Europe was the cradle of the West, Mm -hmm. and that higher learning uh, really came from there, and to a great extent it was true. I mean, don't forget, this started out as Mm -hmm. a colony and remained colonial. It didn't recognize that it was a colonial power, but it was a colonial power, even in its independence, because it was like, it was like uh, Paz, the Mexican writer, said, he said, I am not Spanish, but I was raised in the culture of Spain. And this was not an English country, but it was raised in the culture of England. And that was sort of tacitly acknowledged but not
2: openly.
1: We were very British as a country until the time of Andrew Jackson. The men from Jonathan Edwards and others of his time and before him on uh, for a few generations were learned men who were fully aware of all the uh, scientific development, the philosophical development, the theological uh, trends in Europe and were very well read. But with Jackson's presidency, the common man, so to speak, came into his own and he was contemptuous of Europe. He was... Proud of America in a, a brash, uh, bragging sort of way. And you had the development of the Native Americanist movement. So that, uh, a great many, uh, became, uh, given to this idea that, uh, being an American was being something new in history, and we're very proud of it.
0: Well, that's true, but there was also the other lingered. My father thought the United States was very much imitative of England when he saw this country, and yet there was a it was there was a lot of patriotism, and it was accepted. Now I read in the paper that a school district in florida has decided to instruct its students public school that this country is has a culture that's superior to all others and there are uh, very strong efforts against it because they figure that's uh, that's not true
1: headed by a teacher in that school who is a hindu
0: that's great <clears throat> that's great but after the war Now, we're talking about the changes of World War II. Mm -hmm. After the war, we came out of World War II with a head as large as a pumpkin. All of a sudden, American know-how, a dumb phrase which I had never heard of before, replacing the word knowledge, suddenly appeared. And we were... We no longer had anything to learn from Europe or any other part of the world. We were going to teach the world. That's what the victory in World War II meant to us. We put the English down in the course of the war. We took over the conduct of the war. And, you know, the D-Day celebration that they're talking about is, I think, somewhat ironic because D-Day was planned down to the last ship by General Morgan of the English Army. Mr. Eisenhower, or General Eisenhower, was given a choice of two days to choose based on the weather reports or predictions on which day we would invade. And he chose the day. I've never seen General Morgan's name mentioned in an American publication, and I don't expect it to be mentioned throughout this whole D-Day celebration. And we stopped learning from other countries. And it's gotten to such an extent now, we won't even take a medicine that's been proven mm-hmm. in Western Europe. We have to reprove it here.
1: One of the things that marked the post-World War One era was a bitter reaction against Wilson and what he had done So we became isolationists. We began to stress our country and our independence of European quarrels. Well, after World War II, there was a very strong sentiment in the same direction. And if it had not been for the radical dishonesty and uh, fraud, Perpetrated by the Eisenhower Republicans, Taft would have been the nominee and probably the president.
0: He would have been a good one.
1: Yes. He would have separated us from the internationalism that has since prevailed. And it was only by dishonesty that we were put in this present course.
0: Well, Taft was the only one who had
1: the courage and the intelligence. Yes.
0: To rise up against the Nuremberg trials. Yes. He said it's a violation of every principle of justice and it will set a precedent that will endanger us in the future.
1: He was one of the greatest men of this century in the United States and you never hear of him. He buried him yes. deep. I'm not even sure there's been a biography of him. There may have been, and I haven't heard I of it. I don't
0: believe there has, and now that you bring it up, it would be a wonderful thing to do.
2: Yes. So wh- what is it that buries a man like Taft, w- the press, in, the media? But in theological terms, I mean, is it the fact that we want to control...
1: I think the theological decline that it set in was such that and I was familiar with the uh, the theological press of the day. It was very hostile to Taft. There was something uh, inherently selfish, they felt, about a man who would not uh, press forward to put the United States at the leadership of a united world. So, theologically, the churches had declined to the point that they did not see the issues. In uh, both wars, the churches were very, very weak. They bought all the anti-German propaganda about the rapes and little children's hands being cut off in World War One, and they bought the internationalism in World War Two.
0: It was more than that, Rush. They bought... First of all, Roosevelt and his crowd were anti-colonial because mm-hmm. they were raised that way. And, you know, we all were given this. The redcoats were the enemy of the United States. Up until 1927, our war games for the Navy were against the British Navy. And uh, our whole national history has been one of struggle against Great Britain and being anti-colonial. But the, to be anti-colonial was one thing. Another thing was that it was really Western Europe that had the colonies. And so it turned out to be anti-white that white people should not rule colored races, that that was something that was un- inherently unjust. And that was a an extension of Wilson which came about in the middle of World War II. Now, we went in the war in the first place to beat the Japanese and the Germans. And somewhere after we got in, it became a war for a better world. Uh-huh. And they never spelled out what the better world was going to be. So the whole purpose of the war was changed from a war against the Germans and the Japanese to a war for a new socialist world. Now, this is still the way it is. Uh, Right now, for instance, on D-Day, I think 50 years after D-Day, we should have invited the Germans to join Mm -hmm. because they were there. Mm -hmm. And we've had 50 years of peace. Now, how long is this nonsense going to go on? I think it's dishonorable to have kept the Germans out of this particular recollection.
1: Well, our time is nearing an end. Do you have any last observations, John?
2: Um, No, it's just interesting being the rose between two thorns here. (laughs) <laughs> a pretty big grove <laughs> more like a cabbage <laughs> and and just listening to you both uh, such a wealth of experience and uh, it was a pleasure to be here
1: Otto, any last comments? well thank you all for listening and God bless you
0: Authorized by the Chalcedon Foundation Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library.
2: Digitized by ChristRules.com.